0: Good morning, everyone. If you brought a Bible this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6. You can turn there, and then I will be there in just a moment. Love Pastor Derek. One of the evidences of God's goodness is his faithfulness in Pastor Derek's life. If I'm not mistaken, I'm kind of going off of how long I've been in ministry at this church. I think Pastor Derek's coming on 25 years here doing youth ministry at this church. So uh, I used to tease Pastor Derek all the time as we're all aging. I, I called him the grandfather of youth ministry in this region. And uh, he rejected that right away. It's like, no, Greg. Maybe the father of youth ministry, but not the grandfather. Well, I just want to announce to you all this morning that As of this past week or so, Pastor Derek's daughter uh, had a new baby, so Pastor Derek is a grandfather for the first time. So he is indeed the grandfather of (laughs) youth ministry in this region. So some of you that know Pastor Derek well, you know that he goes by PD for short, PD, that's Pastor Derek but uh, I've changed that now to Papa D, so <laughs> if you want to join me in that, I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> so this morning, I'm talking to you about turning work into worship. Most non-Christians see work, I believe, as just a means to an end. You know, we work in this life, it's nothing we like doing. We work for vacation, we work for retirement, we work for the weekends, we do all this work and just to get something from it, a means to an end. But I found that even a lot of Christians do the same, that our aspirations might be a little more holy in the sense that maybe we work so that we can give to the church or maybe we work to provide for our families or maybe... We work so that we could possibly at some point share Jesus with uh, the people we work with. But still, it's, it's as important as that is. And it is very important. And I do encourage you to do that for these reasons. It is still flawed in this way that the Lord is supreme in the end, in the result of our work, but seemingly not in the means of our work. And so our work is just seems to be only a means to get to this, this end. And I proposed to you this morning that God wants to be in the means of our work. That he wants to be in the center of our work. And so the Bible teaches us that if our work is only a means to an end, it will always be unsatisfying and unfulfilling. And maybe some of you have experienced that. I'm thinking about the words found in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know Ecclesiastes from the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes is that one that is testing life. And he's trying to find fulfillment in life. And so he tries to find fulfillment by great learning. And he, and he, he plummets the depths of knowledge and tries to gain fulfillment through learning. Of course, that falls flat. And then His second quest is to find it through pleasure. And so he tries every sort of pleasure to see if that would bring fulfillment to his life. And that falls flat as well. And then finally there is that achievement through work and accomplishment. Where Ecclesiastes is working hard trying to find fulfillment in his work. But not finding it even in vast accomplishments. In fact, he sums this up by saying, So I hated life, because the work that I did under the sun was grievous to me, all of it meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He goes on to say, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. In short, even if our work is fruitful, it is ultimately pointless. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) But Ecclesiastes is talking about work under the sun. And when he speaks about this, he's talking about in a world that doesn't consider eternity, in a world that doesn't consider the part that God plays in it. And so without God in the center of our work, it really is mean, It is really meaningless. But as believers, as followers of Jesus, we have a little bit different perspective. In fact, there is a way, I believe, that we can turn our work into worship. And it's found here in these verses. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5, reading through verse 9, it says this. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one of each one does, this He will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we are not unaware that you have protected your word for thousands of years that we could look into it on this morning. We are not unaware of your providence in our lives that has brought us to this very spot in this very moment. Lord, we believe there is something simple and yet profound that you want to speak into our lives this morning. And so, Lord, would you add your spirit to these words that are going forth. Lord, may this be the burden of the Lord for this group of people meeting at this time and space. Lord, may you take these words and translate them into words that everyone can understand and everyone can hear and everyone can apply to their lives today. Lord, let none be left out. And we pray it all this morning in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned there's something something very simple and yet profound in these words. Paul is challenging workers to do their work as unto the Lord. Now that seems very simple, but it is hard to accomplish I know from experience. He says do your work unto the Lord for this reason. Number 1 because it's him who we serve. It is the Lord who we serve in this life. He is in all and through all and is all in this life. And to him belongs all the glory. And so there has been this strange dichotomy in our world, in the Christian world, if you don't mind me saying, between sacred and secular that we've kind of separated those two areas. And it seems like the things that we do that we consider secular is, is, doesn't have much of the Lord to do in it. Like I say, we use secular things to get to a spiritual means. But what, am I, what I am proposing to you this morning is that God wants to invade every area of your work life. That he wants to take control of that, that he wants to be the center of it. And that what you do for work is important to God. And so he says in these these verses, a few things I want to draw your attention to. Just as you might guess, three things. That we need to keep in mind as we're considering working, doing our work as unto the Lord. I think really three things are necessary to do that well. The first one is this, know that your your work is good. Know that your work is good. For the Christian, work is a good thing. God was a worker, or maybe better said, God is a worker. I'm thinking of past tense because I'm thinking of Genesis 1 and 2 where God breathed the world or the universe into existence that God is a worker, and because we are created in God's image, we too are workers. In fact, you might be interested to know that in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us that Adam was placed in the garden to till the ground. That's why he was put there, to do work. Work was a part of paradise. In fact, in my judgment. This is why we have such a hard time when we retire or we can't work because of physical complications or whatever it might be, that there's just some sort of angst there that we just can't quite, quite get over. I believe it's because God has created us for work and to work. It's not to be something that's separate. It's to be something that's part of our, part of our being. Adam was a worker. Jesus was a worker. If God were to come into the world, I'm sure the Greeks would want him to come as a philosopher. If he was to come into the world, I'm sure the Romans would want him to come as a statesman. If he was to come into the world, I'm sure the Jews would want him to be a conquering warrior. But the Messiah, the Christ, came into the world as a handyman. He came as a carpenter doing work with his hands. Jesus was a worker. Paul was a worker. He says in Corinthians, I labored even more than all of them. And in Second Thessalonians, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. He goes on to say, for even when we were with you, we used to, we used to give you this order. If anyone does, is not willing to work, then neither let him eat either. Paul was pretty hardcore when it came to working. The early Christians were also workers. You see, the Greeks at this time thought that manual labor was something for the lower class. In fact, there are still parts of the world where that is true that if you're going to do manual labor, that's for, that's for another class, another caste. But once you achieve to a certain point, you no longer have to do manual labor. And so this was very prominent in the New Testament church, but you don't see a hint of it at all amongst the Christians. I mean, it was prominent at this time, but not in the New Testament church. You don't even see a hint of it. In fact, you see the scriptures encouraging people to work and to work hard and to be faithful to their jobs, to work as it were unto the Lord, because your reward in heaven is great. But by the turn of the third century, this, this Greek thought overtook the church. And now now in the church, by the time of Constantine and when Christianity was finally allowed to thrive in society, in fact, became the religion of Rome, when it was finally allowed to thrive, by that time, there was already a, a caste system made that if you were a minister, then you were of the upper class. You were of a higher caste. If you were anything else than a minister, someone who worked in the church, maybe a a monk or a a sister or something of that, you were all of a lower class. Now, you may not know this, but when the reformers reformed the church, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, others at the time, when the church was reformed, in the 16th century, the 1500s, that this was one of the main cries of the reformers, is that there is not a separation between sacred and secular. We have done this in the church, and it is incorrect. There is no separation. In fact, it's, you would be hard-pressed to say there's any difference between sacred and secular for believers, because it's all one. Our work is not a means to an end. Our work is something God has called us to, something God has equipped us with, and something that God will use to serve our families and to serve our neighbor and to serve him. Your work is important to God. Well, wait a second. I just have this this little tiny job that I do. In fact, it's only part-time. And how does that, how does that contribute to what, what God wants? Or, or you know, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mom and I take care of my kids or a stay-at-home parent. And I, how does that? Let me, let me tell you something. You've heard this verse in Romans that says, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and those that are called to his purpose. All things work together for good. That God uses the work that he's called you to for his purpose. Let me illustrate it with this story. This past July marks the anniversary, the four-year anniversary, of the rescue of the 13 Thai children stuck in a cave in northern Thailand. Does anybody remember this story? Okay, so this is four years ago this past July. It took rescuers... Well, well, let me back up a little bit. The boys, the boys with their 25 year old assistant coach, decided to go to this exploring in this cave after soccer practice one day. And the rains began to come down, a torrential rain, it began to flood the cave. And so they were trapped inside the cave. In fact, it pushed them farther and farther and farther back into the cave until they were two and a half miles from the cave entrance. So when the boys were missed at dinner time, their parents started asking questions of where they'd been. One of the boys had decided not to go with them. And so they asked them, where are the boys? And they said, they went to the cave with our assistant coach. They get to the cave. There they are, 13 bicycles lined up at the the mouth of the cave. It would be another two weeks before they would find the first boy. Two weeks. And then another week before they figured out how they were going to get him out. And then another two days between how they got, when they got the first boy out and the second boy out. Not one of those children, including their assistant coach, was lost. Only one of the divers lost their life in this rescue. In that rescue operation, it is said that 10,000 people participated, including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from about 100 governmental agencies, 900 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, and pumping and the pumping of more than 1 billion liters of water from the caves were required. It's estimated that those who indirectly were involved numbered over 150,000, including those who worked in communications, engineers, software developers, doctors, administrators, analysts, and a very small army of moms making meals for the 10,000 workers. When considering everyone who had some small supportive role in the development and the production of, equi- of either equipment or personnel for the rescue, it is estimated that over 2.5 million people participated in the rescue of those 13 boys. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story, as this is all unfolding, it becomes apparent that there, are uh, to this person that... Uh, who worked in central Arkansas at a plastics factory. He worked at an extruding machine. That's a, that's a machine that shoots plastic into a mold, and then the worker will push push buttons, and then it'll make the form, and then it'll pop the form out, and he's there to push the buttons, to extrude and to make the form. And so this guy in central Arkansas, standing at extruding machine day after day making plastic parts, comes to realize that the plastic parts which he was making was used in the pumps, used to pump the water out from the cave, which rescuers would have no chance if they went to had those pumps. And so here, out of the 2.5 million people, is one guy just doing his job faithfully day after day, who was a part of rescuing those 13 boys. Now let me ask you, don't answer, just think. Who rescued those boys? Was it the first diver that saw them who said, I smelt them before I saw them? Was it the team of hundreds, a hundred divers that swam upstream and downstream over this 2.5 mile uh, hike Uh, One direction, four hours with the stream. Another direction, five hours going against the, the flow. Ten hours for each boy, back and forth. Or was it the divers? Or was it the medical people who helped in sedating the children so that they would not be a harm to themselves or the divers? Some of the passages that they had to go through were 18 by 24 inches. Or was it the medical personnel, or was it the ambulance drivers, or was it it the supporting people, or the people that supported them? I think an argument could be made that they were all part of rescuing those boys. (laughs) That they were all needed. Some in a very small way, some in a very direct way, but that they were all needed. And so with us, the same thing is true. You might look at your work and say... I don't, I, don't, I don't have a part in helping my family or helping the, my neighbor or helping the kingdom. But I would say, indeed, you do. Indeed, you do. So I want to say, first of all, to you that your work is good. That God has made you the way he has made you for the work that he has called you to. And that brings me to my second point. Know that your work is good, number one. Secondly, know that your work is a calling. It is a calling from the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul uses two words here that are commonly used to call people into the kingdom or call people into ministry for the Lord. One is assigned and one is called. But in this instant, he is talking about the day-to-day life things. He is talking about vocation, if you will. He's talking about our work lives. That he calls and he assigns the things that we are to do. Now, the difficulty that sometimes we run into is that we're in a job that we haven't been called to or assigned to. And so that job becomes very difficult for us. Now, part of the difficulty is because of the fall and, and you know, everything being, being harder when Adam and Eve sinned, all those things. So part of it's that. But part of it is just that we're not, we haven't been called to that. That's not what God has equipped us for. So I, I have a friend, his name's Sean. I've shared parts of Sean's story with you before, and so forgive me if if I'm repeating myself, but Sean, uh, let me back up just a little bit. One day in my office at the church I was serving in at the time, I was meeting with someone, and when I finished meeting with them, they got up and left my office and went out into the sanctuary, which they needed to go through to get outside, and they went through the sanctuary and he was gone for probably about 10 minutes or so. And after 10 minutes, he came back. And he said, hey, there was someone sitting out in the sanctuary and I just led them to Jesus. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I just, I just prayed with them and that sort of thing. Now, now I'm thinking to myself, you know, a lot of people respond to prayers and a lot of people, you know, raise their hand and you know that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean that every time someone prays or raises a hand, it doesn't mean that, you know, that's the, the deal. It doesn't mean that. So I go out there and I'm I'm a little um, a little suspicious and I I say hi, I'm Greg, and he's, he introduces himself and I said I said, my friend just told me that he led you to Jesus. He'd go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He led me to Jesus. I prayed the prayer and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, where do you live? Well, I live up the street here. I was just walking by. just came in. Thought I should come in and sat down and he shared and you know, I thought, whoa, this is, this is kind of cool, right? And I'm like, okay, well, praise God. You know, hoping to see you on Sunday, you know, sort of thing. He shows up on Sunday. He's in the, he's in the congregation raising his hands, you know, acting like a charismatic, you know, sort of thing. And and uh, I'm like, man, this is the real deal. Here he is. The next week, he comes back with his brother. I forget his brother's name. Comes back with his brother. I forget these guys' names now, many years ago. He comes back with his brother. He said, yeah, I, I shared Jesus with my brother. And, and we prayed the prayer that that guy prayed with me. And, and now we're both here. And then they are, they are both like charismatics out there raising their hands, you know, and carrying on, you know, like you people do. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought, wow, this is something, you know, and, and uh, the following week, I mean, I might have my, I might have my timeline a little wrong, wrong, but it seemed like this. And the following week, their third brother is there, acting all crazy, you know, and uh, I'm like, my goodness, what is going on here? So, so uh, that day, we were praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and so I invited a bunch of people up, I mean, I invited everybody up, a bunch of people came, and I'm standing at the front, and I'm going down the line, and here is Sean standing, the third brother. Here's Sean standing in front of me. And uh, I go, Sean, what's up? He goes, I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I said, I said, well, Sean, you have to give your life to Jesus first. He goes, yeah, I did that last week. I'm like, okay, okay, let's do this, you know, and prayed for him for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, Sean, Sean is transformed. I mean, he is born again. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And, uh, he was, a, he was an industrial engineer who worked for Kraft when Kraft was over here. And he was the guy that designed the, the uh, you know, <laughs> what? Assembly line, assembly line. He was the one that designed how packages go and do, does all that and stuff. And making a ton of money. He meets a girl in the church. They get married, start having kids. And uh, I meet with Sean one day. And he says, you know, I just feel like God is calling me to teach. And I go, I go, Sean, we got all kinds of places for you to teach. I mean, you can, you can lead a small group, you can teach in this setting, you can teach in that setting. He goes, no, no, it's not in the church, it's in the marketplace. I'm like, huh, huh, I don't know if I can help you with that, Sean. I mean, I could pray with you, you know, sort of thing. But Sean realized going from being an industrial engineer to a teacher is gonna be a huge financial sacrifice. So it took him many years to get his financial house in order. But eventually, Sean became a teacher. Because that's the way that God had made him. That's the way that God had created him. He never liked being an industrial engineer. He did it because he couldn't make a lot of money. And because his parents wanted him to. What he wanted to do was be a teacher. And so today, Sean is teaching at University of University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, as a teacher in their engineering department, and loving it and making an impact for the Lord. Guys, God calls us, but as he calls us, he also equips us. There is a, a verse in the Old Testament that I just love. This is in Exodus chapter 31. This is God gathering together the craftsmen to build the Old Testament tabernacle. And it says here, starting in verse uh, one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by my name Bazael, El, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding, in knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship. Now listen, he isn't call calling him to the ministry per se. He's calling him to a construction job. And he says, God says, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of craftsmanship. And he goes on to say, To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze. And in the cutting of stones and for the setting and carving of wood. and, And he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him several others with hard to pronounce names. From the tribe of Dan and the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. In the tent of meeting. All those who have skill, I have put skill. Now I know what you're thinking. Greg, you don't know how hard I've worked at being skillful. You don't know how much time I spent in school. You don't know how much time I spent developing this trade. You don't know how much... Let me tell you another story. Let me tell you a story about Israel going into the promised land. And God saying to them, don't forget me when you go into the land. Because when you go into the land, you're going to have plenty. You're going to have herds. You're going to have houses. You're going to have land. You're going to have all these things. Don't forget the land. Don't forget the Lord. Lest you say in my heart, I myself have made me this wealth. This is the danger that we take the blessing of the Lord in our work and make it an idol. He gives us the skill to be skillful and instead of using it for our family and for our neighbors and for him, we use it for ourselves. And we work for ourselves. This was the issue with with the Tower of, of Babel. Remember this? This is is Genesis chapter 11, where the people of that time said, come, let us build a tower to heaven. They figured out how to make bricks. It wasn't made of stone. It was made of bricks. And it's clear that they had figured it out, that this was new technology. Figured out how to make bricks. Let's make a tower to heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves. And there it is. Blatant idolatry. Instead of giving glory to God, instead of working a job for God, instead of, instead of uh, taking his gifts that we, he has given us to use for our family and our neighbor and him, we take it and we use it for ourselves to make a name for ourselves. Blatant idolatry. So know that your work is good. Good. Know that your work is a calling and that he doesn't only call, he equips. But know this too. Know that your work is a ministry. And when I say ministry, I mean service. That your work is a service. It's not just for you. God has called you. God has equipped you to work. But it's not all for you. It's for, as I've said many times, for your family and for your neighbor and and for the Lord. We make work worship by putting Jesus at the center of it. Making him the center every single day. Now here's, here's three things you can do. You might want to write this down. Here's three things you can do to ensure that your work remains a ministry. Three things you can do to make sure your work remains a ministry. I wrote them down. Number one, maintain a consistent relationship with God. Maintain a consistent relationship with God. Remember this passage in Matthew chapter 6? seek first the kingdom of god and all and all these things shall be added unto you or better said seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you if we put christ at the center of our work we will be less likely to turn our work into an idol that it's all for him it's all for him this was this was uh, joseph in the Old Testament. This was Joseph who was sold into slavery and then to Potiphar's house. And, and you know, the thing about Joseph, it's like, it's like the cream on milk. It just keeps rising to the top. You can shake it up, you know. I know I'm, I'm aging myself with this illustration. But, you know, you could shape it up, shake it up, sit it on the counter, and pretty soon the cream's rising to the top. That was Joseph. You can't, you can't keep a good man down. He had God at the center of his life. He said, when he finally met his brother's face to face, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That he could see through that. That that you meant this, this whole this whole episode, me being in Potiphar's house, me being in the well, me, all this, you meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. There's someone else, Daniel. Daniel who 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 prayed three times a day, and then An objector said, no, I don't like this. Let's make a law where you can't pray three times a day. When Daniel found out about that, he went to his room and he started praying. And he opened his window. I don't know if it was so people could see him or not, but he opened his window. And he prayed. You can help not making your work an idol if you put Jesus at the center. Here's the last person. I talked to you about Joseph. I talked to you about Daniel. I talked to you about Esther. Esther. None of these three people were prophets or evangelists or pastors. They were people who worked in the workplace, who had risen to a particular uh, stature in that workplace. And so I think many of you know the account of Esther. Esther was a Jewish girl, and uh, the king had dismissed his, his previous wife because she had upset him, so she, he dismissed her, and now he needs a new wife. So he goes looking for a new wife, finds this young Jewish girl. He didn't know he, she was a Jewish girl, but finds this young Jewish girl. She ends up pleasing him, and so they end up getting, getting married. Well, a parallel plot in this story is... is uh, uh, a Haman, wicked Haman, wanting to kill all the Jews. And so he's devising a plot for all the Jews to be killed. And during this time, it's, it's Esther's uncle Mordecai that finally comes to Esther and says, Esther, would you go to the king and ask if he would spare the Jews? And Esther's response is this. Esther's response is, Mordecai, do you understand what you're asking? If I go to the king without him inviting me, I will be killed. I mean, she knew that to go to the king without an invitation was certain death. But Mordecai says to her these words, he says, Who knows whether you have come to this place of royalty for such a time as this? Esther had a choice to make right here. As did Daniel, as did Joseph. Is the palace more precious than following the Lord? Is the palace so precious that I will not risk it to follow the Lord? If you're in the workplace, this is a conundrum that you may face often. Is the palace so important that you cannot risk it for the Lord? Here's Esther's response. I will go, and I will ask him, and if I perish, I perish. Because it is the Lord's after all, right? It is the Lord that, that it's the Lord that from your mother's womb, put those gifts and talents into your, or not talents, but put those put those abilities into your life that program them into your DNA. That God knew in your mother's womb what abilities he was giving you and what abilities you would have. And then as you grew up, of course, you you would hone those and those became talents. And then after you became a believer, Jesus also, through the Holy Spirit, added gifts into your life. And now you're using these gifts and these talents and these, these abilities to serve him. But on occasion... You might have to risk the palace to follow him. You might have to say, if I lose my job, I lose my job. I need to follow the Lord in this. So here's the first thing. Make Jesus a priority every day. I want to say it like this. Maintain a consistent relationship with God. Here's the second thing maintain a consistent routine of rest, a consistent routine of rest. The Ten Commandments in in Exodus chapter 20 tells us about obeying the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And as New Testament believers, we realize that this is a time that God calls us to rest. God himself rested on the seventh day. And so we need rest in our life. But the reason I bring this up today is this. is because sometimes we think it all, it all depends on us. The whole thing is held together by a, by a shoestring. And if I take a day off, or if I take a week of vacation, or if I take a, a sabbatical for a month, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Guys, I think you've heard this before. But one thing we've learned from taking sabbaticals, the pastors taking sabbaticals here at the church. One thing we've learned... As that we're not as needed as we think we are. That's one important thing we've learned. Because you know what? Everything keeps on going. Everything keeps on going. Pastor Tom takes a sabbatical all the way down the chain of command. Takes, everybody takes a sabbatical. You know what? Because this can function without him, because, without us, because he is in control. He is in control of all this. He's got his hand on it. He's not going to take his hand off of it. Yes, does there need to be preparation? Yes, all of that stuff needs to happen. But taking time for rest reaffirms in our life that it doesn't, it's not all on us. It's not all on us. I can take a day off. I don't have to work every day. The reason is, is because God's got this. He has called me to this. He has equipped me for this. And he has made it that I can do this in six days and I can rest the seventh day. That's the way he's made it. If you have to work seven days, there's something you're not doing right. There's something you're not doing right. You might not, you might be taking on more than God really wants you to take on. But when we make rest a consistent part of our work life, then that reinforces in our life that this is God's thing. This is God's. This is God has it all. Let me give you the third point and then we'll close. Here's the last thing to help us make sure that our work life remains a ministry. Make tithing a consistent part of your life. Some might say, Greg, I can see right through that. You're just trying to get more money from me. The reason I say that is this. That money that you have, that we have, has been given to us by the Lord. Did I tell you about Israel going into the promised land? And oh, I did say that. And saying, by my own hand, I've made myself this wealth. May it never come to that. May we never say, this is all mine, Lord. But when we give, when we consistently give away, tithing, by the way, for those that might not know, is giving away 10% of your income. When we consistently give away, things that reinforces that, hey, it doesn't depend on me. My boss is not my provider. God is my provider, and I'm returning to him out of the abundance that he's given me so much more than I deserve. He has lavished upon me, and a small part of that, I'm just returning to him. I'm just saying, here you go, Lord, this is you. And it reinforces in my own life that I am not my provider, that God is my provider, and I will honor him. My boss is not my provider, I will, I will honor the Lord. So these are the three things to help keep work as, as ministry.